Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. From the Fox News Podcast Network, I'm Dana Perino and everything will be okay. Welcome back. Last week, we heard from former Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice about the importance of her father's influence in her life, teaching her important lessons like believing in yourself and not seeing limitations to anything you want to do. And she told us a terrific story about Vladimir Putin. This week, I have two guests who helped me learn to believe the same in myself. And there are no limits to success when you work hard and put your mind and heart to something you care about. month after being in Washington, I went to a hockey game. I knew nothing about the game, but the ticket was free. I sat next to someone who asked what I wanted to do in Washington. I replied that I wanted to work my way up to being a House press secretary one day. Note, I didn't say the White House, just the Congressional House, for a member of Congress. He just happened to know of such a job in another Colorado congressman's office. He said I should go for it. I was hesitant. Wouldn't it look bad to change jobs so quickly? I just got here, I said. Oh, you have no idea how this works, he said. The next day, he set up an interview for me with the outgoing press secretary on the fifth floor of the Rayburn House office building. She told me all about the job and sized me up and went on to recommend me for the job. And just like that, I joined Representative Dan Schaefer's office. There I met my first real mentor, Holly Probst. Holly Probst was my very first boss and mentor on Capitol Hill, and today she is Deputy Executive Director and Policy Director of Western Governors Association and continues to launch young professionals into the working world with her help and guidance, as well as raising three wonderful children. Holly, I am so excited for people to get to hear from you because I feel like I'm always giving mentoring advice and saying, well, this is what my first mentor, Holly Probst, said to do or how she taught me. And I talk about you all the time. I've written about you. And now people get to hear from you directly. One of the things that impressed me about you when I first um, met you was, one, you're very calm, cool, and collected. Um, But you're also one of these women that I look at and think, how does she do it all? You are a mother of three. Uh, Your youngest is about to graduate from high school. You've done all of these things. But I wanted to maybe start where you did, which is, I believe, as an intern on Dan Schaefer's campaign. Is that right? That's exactly right. I was, well, I I was on his campaign um, and then came to D.C. when he did and started out as many young staffers do on the front desk and then moved into the press shop and on up from there. And you went to law school at night. I did. 
and you became the yep. legislative director and yep. the chief of staff. That's correct. So tell me a little bit, if you could look back. So that was, for everybody's frame of reference, that was um, late 80s, early ni- through the mid-90s. And what was it like then as one of, I think, of the few, although now there are many, women chiefs of staff on Capitol Hill at the time? Um, you know, the thing about Capitol Hill is uh, it is a tremendous blessing to young people who land there because it's an environment full of young people, probably given responsibility beyond their years um, and this the nature of the beast. Um, and so it was a natural progression. I had a great boss who uh, elevated uh, talent. I think that was one of his strengths um, and looked to hold on to talent and give them new opportunities. And so I was lucky in that way, um, but I, w- we, I was also lucky in the broader environment that I got to work in, and you experienced that as well, because it launches young people into the world and really drives past one of the things that I think is the biggest impediments to people, both in their personal and professional careers, which is fear. Um, it's not an environment that you survive if you're a person who's timid, um, and so it is really a wonderful training ground for people. All of us grapple with fear but it really pushes people to uh, gain competence. And, you know, if you're afraid, you you fake it till you make it. And um, there was a lot of that going on for me as a young staffer. So I was glad to have mentors that um, stuck with me and, um, and I gained a profound set of skills that I've used to this day. The idea of Dan Schaefer, who is the congressman we worked for, um, providing opportunity is something I also learned from you. Um, one of the things I talk about in the book is don't be a boss hog. And some people, um, when they're in positions of management or leadership, might hog all the time with the CEO or the congressman or the president, whoever it might be. But what I've found with you is that you very much encouraged us to present our ideas and our views, um, maybe contrary opinions, to the congressman directly and in a way that was respectful but maybe perhaps persuasive and I really, I really think that was important. And later on, I tried to do that with the, for example, the deputy press secretaries. I wouldn't always go into the meeting in the Oval Office. I might say, look, this is one that you can cover for me. Um, and I remember another thing that you did. I got, to co- I got to go to a meeting on your behalf at one point. And before I left, you said, and I don't expect you to be a little mouse in there, um, you know, you're going in my place for a reason, and I need to make sure that my point of view is well known in that room. And I thought that was so helpful to me as well. Yeah, well, on, the, on your first point, I would say um, Dan Schaefer taught me that. Dan Schaefer's um, belief was that his entire team um, was worthy of being heard and was worthy of giving responsibility to. And he really backed us up, not just me, but the entire team. So that ethos is something I learned one of the many things I, I learned um, from him, and I was lucky to uh, grow up professionally in that environment. But it really is a blessing because no leader can, um, I mean, a, a, a leadership style that funnels everything through one person is obviously very limiting, right? Um, just by its very structure. But it, because you need to have people that you trust out um, you know, hitting it hard every day uh, for, in terms of supporting the mission of the organization. And that structure uh, works against uh, the organizational imperatives. So um, really happy to have had that chance. And what I would say, you know, if you know why you're in a room, 
um, then you, there's no reason to be timid. I think one of the other things you learn in Capitol Hill is you need to decide what rooms are really important for you to be in and what rooms you're in there for other reasons. And if you don't know why you're in a room, then you probably shouldn't be there strategically, um, <laughs> no matter what sort of organization or in, in, um, environment you're in. But if you're in a room then, and you know why you're there, then you need to execute on it. And I never had any um, qualms about sending sending you out. Um, you were a young staffer who it always struck me, uh, especially right after you came, who didn't know she was young. You know, you <laughs> <laughs> making it before you made it, but you really exuded confidence and you worked hard to be prepared, which I think is also uh, an absolute key to success for anyone, anywhere. Uh, probably in professional and personal life, um, but you just were really ready. So I didn't have any qualms about sending you into room because I know that you had were so hyper conscientious and were so prepared um, that I could do that with confidence uh, and uh, spend my time doing other things on behalf of the organization. Thinking of people being in meetings and um, knowing while you're there, I was just remembering one time, like, I totally agree with that, obviously, but there was um, something that comes to mind, which is sometimes you're in a situation, uh, and perhaps a young staffer, or (laughs) uh, I I don't want this to come off the wrong way, but at the White House, there was a time when, let's say you're talking about one thing, and then the subject changes, and that's not really your area of expertise, but you decide to weigh in anyway. So a couple of times when this would happen around President Bush, he would, you know, cock his head and look at... Uh, the person over his glasses and say, hey, next time you're going to change lanes, why don't you you use your turn signal? (laughs) (laughs) Like, oh, that was a tell. Like, okay, um, he didn't think that was very helpful. Um, I don't know if you realize, (laughs) but advice that you gave me became the title of my first book. Uh, It is And the Good News Is. Because one of the things you told me, especially because as you're a press secretary, if you go in and he was... um, uh, chairman of the Energy and Power Subcommittee, so a senior member of Congress, been there for a while. Um, if you go in to see him because the Washington Post called, you're probably not going in to say, oh, there's a beautiful profile that will be written about you on page one tomorrow. <laughs> it's usually either bad news or uh, a, a difficult story or something. And you said, always leave on a high note because then they'll want to see you again. And I carried yeah. that with me. So I've, I ever had an opportunity or needed to go into the Oval Office or to the Chief of Staff's office on uh, at the White House, I would say, okay, here's what's going on. But the good news is this. And it really worked for me. So I encourage people to try to think about that and having a positive attitude wherever you can find it, even if it's just to say, the good news is we're on top of it. We're working our plan. We're going to try our best. Right. Yeah. I totally believe that. And, you know, you really, it goes along with a lot of uh, what I feel generally, but what I really feel today, which is, I think people, and particularly young people, this is a particularly hard period, right? Because so much of the world is being driven by by fear. And it's really hard to um, sort of build that muscle of, you know, viewing the world in terms of opportunity and optimism and um, uh, positivity in this broader environment right now, but it's, uh, it's really crucial. It's crucial because human beings be, you know, we may react to fear, but we want to be inspired by positivity and a place to go forward from, you know, from, from a place that's not as um, optimal. And 
I think everybody's got to brush off their skills right now around managing mm-hmm. and move, you know, really looking for how you think about things. It's not that you disregard risk, but we really have to remind ourselves how to think about where, where there is positivity and how to figure out next steps for ourselves personally or professionally, and maybe even as a country by really trying to use some, um, some skills that we haven't got had the opportunity to use for a little while in, in this kind of weird environment we're in. I think that's and, true, especially in terms of um, just social skills. And I don't mean like people forgot how to use which fork at the dinner, but even like gearing yourself up to go back out and go to networking events or things, because so, you yeah. have to you have to do that. And especially post-COVID as we come out of this, that's so important. And another thing that you really taught me, and you taught me how to do it better, but you taught me the importance of it. And I stress this for people especially younger people, it's to improve your writing skills. Yeah. Did you, were you always a really good writer or did that grow over time, Um, especially at law school perhaps? Well, I, uh, so I grew up with a mother who was an English teacher Uh um, and, and was still fairly proficient in Latin um, and so she knew the English language. She knew language generally. And <laughs> the story that my brothers and I always talk about is we would get our grades, especially in English or anything where we had writing, and we would come home and she would ask to see them and then she would regrade them uh, for us. <laughs> I see. <laughs> and walk us through, <laughs> uh, you know, sort of uh, a nuance of grammar and so forth. So um, I, I think I got one of the best teachers ever on writing, but what the biggest thing she taught me, and it's really true around communication skills generally for people, is you get better by doing it. And you get better by doing it and then asking for feedback on how you can improve. And that is true of writing, but it's also true, um, as I'm sure you can attest, to all communications, public speaking, um, you know, really all the kind of communications tools that are really necessary, not just in a communications job, but really necessary for everyone in this day and age um, that is interacting with other people or it's in some kind of organizational structure. Who might have been your role models um, either at that time or even now? My parents were my biggest role models. Um, uh, both of them were incredibly smart uh, people that could think in a very cross-cutting ways. Um, but the big thing that I learned from both of my parents were they were, they were World War II era, um, folks. So they had all those attributes, right? Just an endless capacity for hard work, um, a sense of civic responsibility, uh, the ability to just not let fear or a challenge, knock them down. But to, you know, my dad used to say is, you know, just go work the damn problem. You know, it's, <laughs> it's not going to, it's not going to stop you if you, you know, if you start picking it apart and work the problem and um, that work ethic and, and the idea of never, never saying die. Uh, he was a rancher. And as you know, coming from a ranch, mm-hmm. that's not for the faint of heart. Uh, you can be the best manager in the world, and then Mother Nature has other plans for you and your family, and you got to pick yourself up after that hailstorm or the flood and, you know, go at it again. And so I, I, have, I have been blessed with interacting with a tremendous number of um, unbelievably talented people in the world, but those core uh, sort of skills and things that I go back to, um, you know, go, are my parents and my family, and I... Uh, 
I was very blessed. Is there anything that you learned from them that you made sure to teach your kids? Uh, tenacity. Um, and I think it's a work in progress. You know, it's really hard for you. My kids are all uh, between 18 and 22, and they feel a lot of anxiety about, you know, the world and going out and trying to figure out the adulting thing. And uh, what I keep trying to tell them is exactly, I just hear my dad's voice in my head, you know, work the problem. The problem can't beat you if you apply, you know, energy and a work ethic and, you know, you're a smart person, apply your, your intellect to problems and then just pick the problem apart. Because the truth of the matter is picking the small thing you can solve usually opens up the solution to the bigger things. And so really teaching people in um, about young people in particular about just not freezing, but to view a challenge as an opportunity to, you know, to bring your talents to bear on something um, is, is really the thing I'm trying to um, reinforce with them. And when, it's a work in progress, yeah. right? <laughs> especially the only- with the pandemic, um, I yeah, feel like, sure. um, especially the 22-year-old, right? So. This right. last year has been not what uh, was expected, I imagine. Well, for any of them. So mm-hmm. both of two older kids were pretty early in their college careers when the pandemic hit. So they they moved to, you know, out of school and then back into remote work, uh, re- remote living and uh, work, uh, excuse me, on school. But my younger daughter was a junior and, se- uh, junior and senior. So all those rituals that yeah. everyone to enjoy she didn't so you know I think this has been very hard on kids but I think you know I hope we all message to their strengths and not their weaknesses because one of the things that will come out of this like any generation that is is hit with something that really uh, requires resilience is the ability to adapt right and and to be resilient to change and to not be paralyzed by fear and I hope they that's the thing that they can come out the other side and and have the benefit for the rest of their lives. Probably I actually feel pretty excited for them um, for because I do think that resilience will come. And Caitlin Flanagan wrote in The Atlantic last year to um, graduates, uh, in so that would have been May of 2020, that history has found you. And yeah. you will always be stronger for having gone through this. They might not necessarily realize that now, but I'm excited for their futures because I do think they'll be ready to get back out there, as you said, take some risk which is important. The other thing I just wanted to maybe close with was just a heartfelt gratitude because I absolutely do not think I would be where I am today um, if I had not had a chance to um, learn under you. But also one thing that you did as a manager is you kept our team very close. And I am happy to say that I'm still friends with all of those people that I worked with on Capitol Hill. And a lot of that will always come from the top, from the congressman and from the way that you um, wanted to run the office. And I think that's not just true in a congressional office, but all across um, the different sectors that you can work in, that finding a way to build friendships amongst your team and working together is just, it was a real blessing for me. And I want to thank you for that. Well, I want to thank you, Dana. Uh, You've been a blessing on my life and, you know, this kind of uh, positive statements back to somebody who's been leading teams for many years is, you know, it's the highest kind of praise and the, and the best gift I could get. And I'm just so proud and happy for your success. And what I will say to finish is not as a 
shameless plug of your book, but but I really do want to say how much your latest book has resonated with me for all the reasons we talked about today. But it is just a really wonderful, clear-eyed manual, resource manual um, for not just young people, but especially young people to to navigate uh, to that that place that that you can see for them. Um, And so I just really appreciate your contribution uh, to to young people, um, mentoring them personally and mentoring them in the form of things like this book. That's really Thank you so and much. We're in the mutual admiration gra- society. <laughs> it's going to be a graduation gift for my daughter uh, when she graduates. Next week, well, there's so. no greater honor than that. And um, so from me and from all of the, your team, you know, Patrick and Eric and Jill and Matt and all of us, um, you were tremendous in getting us started in our careers. And we thank you and we'll let you get back to that beautiful daughter and enjoy her birthday and graduation. Thank you, Dana. Wait right there. We'll have more next. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate. Celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. At the White House, my goodness, there were so many women I respected. First Lady Laura Bush, Secretaries Condoleezza Rice and Margaret Spellings, and Fran Townsend, to name a few. Finally, on to Fox News, where I have wonderful colleagues who keep teaching me the ropes. And I've witnessed Suzanne Scott work her way up to CEO of the company, With a steady hand, no drama, and little fanfare, she's guided the company to new records for ratings and revenue. So I've learned that there are role models everywhere you look. I want to highlight one in particular, Anne Gloke. Dame Anne Gloke is a former nurse and founder of the Freedom From Fistula Foundation. Anne has been involved in the international charity Mercy Ships for decades, and that's an organization very close to my heart. She has not only changed my life, but the many lives of people she has helped all across the world. Anne, I wanted to hear a little bit about your upbringing and your decision to become a nurse. Did you always know that's what you wanted to do? Yes, I think I don't remember a time I did not want to be a nurse. So deciding when I became a teenager, what I wanted to do was, you know, so easy for me. It's just something I always wanted to do, even as a small child. And so you um, achieve that goal. And then you um, um, marry and you have um, your children, and then there's a change in your life, quite a, a different career path. And could you tell people what that was like to go from uh, being a nurse to being an entrepreneur? Okay, so I went into the transport business, which is about buses, coaches. Um, so it's a very labor-intensive business. So to be a nurse, you have to be a people person. And so I learned a lot of my people skills in nursing, which I loved. 
I loved everything about it and I did not leave because I was unhappy. I left because there was a one-off opportunity to go into business. Um, so I think that my, my people skills were a big advantage going into a labor-intensive business, which was all about persuading people to travel with us, lots of staff, all people issues. So I do think, and I think a lot of my nursing experiences, I, I was actually, I think you would call it an OR mm -hmm. um, department head. So you had to learn, you know, a lot of the skills you need in business, you know, stock control and, and you know, all sorts of things like that. So I felt my nursing training was one of the great benefits when I went, in, when I went into, into business. I would imagine so. Let's jump ahead then. So the business does very well. It expands um, internationally. How did you end up with Africa on your list of to-do countries? And what was it like, your sort of your first experience there and recognizing that you not only could grow your business there, but that you could also help when it came to um, oh. maternal health? Okay, so what happened was about 1987, 86 started. My brother and I, who were the people who had started the business, we were looking for opportunities to expand. Um, we discovered that this company in London, which was a publicly floated company, wanted to sell off their bus companies in Africa. So we went to London and we spoke to them about buying the bus company. So after some negotiations, um, we bought it. Now, the only thing my brother and I knew about Malawi was our mother was the missionary society leader in the church. So as children, we had spent our life like knit, knitting these squares, making blankets to send to Malawi. And Malawi was the country we bought this bus company in. So that was our whole association or all that we knew about it. So we arrive in this country, you know, we're not a great deal of knowledge. So our learning curve was really, really steep and um, very enjoyable, but we had a lot to learn. So that was, our, that was my first introduction to Malawi. And it was, it was amazing for my mother that, you know, she had spent her life um, sending these missionary boxes to Malawi and here were we running a business there. But I think also that was a very useful turning point in my life because we really saw poverty and, and it was just such a different way of life. So I became aware even then about the enormous needs of the people. And the first thing we actually did, we had to make a really strong stand about never paying bribes because we were inundated with politicians wanting us to pay them bribes, which was a new experience for us. So we would say, absolutely not. So my brother and I had this discussion. We said, no, what we're going to do, we'll do something for the community. So we won't give to an individual, we won't pay bribes, but we'll do community things. So again, that was my first step into kind of doing charitable stuff. You then uh, 
expand on all of these efforts. And I first had a chance to get to know uh, uh, about you, I hadn't met you yet, when I visited Sierra Leone and the uh, clinic there. And if you could just describe what you do there and just how important this work is. So what happened was, after a number of years working in Africa, I was approached by the charity who you're familiar with, Mercy Ships, and haven't discovered how hard it is to do really good quality healthcare in Africa. I was absolutely delighted and overwhelmed by Mercy Ship and, and how unique it was and how successful it was in delivering healthcare. So I got involved with Mercy Ships and it was there that I realized there was an enormous problem with a women's health issue called fistula. And this happens as a result of a birth injury. So I then just, I became so involved and so concerned about it when I realized over 2 million women in Africa are suffering with this all the time. And it's a huge ongoing problem caused by lack of maternal health care. So then I decided I am going to do something about this because these women are outcasts of society. They have no voice. They have nobody, it seemed at that point, doing very much about it. And so we took over the small hospital in Sierra Leone and we turned it into a women's hospital. It's for women and children. And we then started to do this fistula surgery, which is not always, but quite frequently happens during a first pregnancy because number one, that usually the girl is too young to be having children. Our pelvis is not properly developed and they run into this enormous problems of trying to deliver a baby. And then they get this enormous birth injury that renders them incontinent. And they, they become so incontinent and they smell so much that they are thrown out of the village. So that's why they become outcasts of society. And, you know, maybe somebody will just give them a bowl of food or something each day, but they're never accepted back into society until they've had this surgery, which we were performing. And the fantastic bit was, it was just like giving them their life back. So they go home, they don't smell, they're reestablished in society. So to me, it was an enormously worthwhile mm. thing to do. When I was there, I remember um, that, one, I was just, I didn't know about the condition because, um, as you said, like here in America or in the UK, um, if a fistula is developed, it would get fixed. That's what we are able to do that, and not right. all countries can. Um, so the surgery, obviously, is very important. The other thing that really blew me away was how you insisted that when the women came to um, have their surgery that they didn't have to do any work while they were there. And that might have been the first time in their life that they didn't have to, but that you also tried teaching them skills so that they would have something that they could do when they went back. On the day I was there, I was really, uh, gosh, it still gets to me, You know, the women there that day were learning to count to 10. And I know that they also learned That's to right. make curtains or something. But two things that I think really stuck out for me and which I remember and think about and inspired me and why I think of you as my current role model 
was two things. One, how you convinced the men from the leaders of the uh, villages to get to allow you to have the women come to your uh, facility for treatment. And the second one is that, um, one, you're obviously so um, accomplished, but you're also extremely modest and humble and really live your faith. And the way that you gave back, I think, was finally then recognized uh, by the Queen of England. So if you could maybe start with that story about the um, how you decided to approach these chiefs and convince them. Right. So when we wanted to open the hospital, we always had to, to deal through the chiefs. And when I said it's for women, and ch- for women, I said initially, and they would not give us permission to open it, not at all, and because there was nothing for the men. And um, so we had to do a lot of education and be quite tolerant. So then I said, well, what we'll do is we'll do it for children, women and children. And so we take care of children up to about 16. So we managed to get buy-in from the men for that. But it's just amazing over the years. Now, if I'm there, the men are so grateful and will actually come and see how happy they are about what we do. So I think, you know, it's, it's quite hard work initially sometimes just understand these cultural issues and there's no point taking it head on. You've got to get alongside them and persuade them. And then, you know, when they finally see it, they then become supportive and like they then bring their women or more so they bring their children, which is great because that's what gives us buy-in. And, and you can't have success if you're just continually head button with the men. So that is is hugely important. The other thing that's, to me, very important, you've got to empower the women. These women in these countries are absolutely second class. We have to acknowledge that. And so when we actually fix them physically, we have to send them home empowered economically so that they have some degree of independence, you know, They've got some money to send their children to school. They have some money to get health care. They've got some money to plant, buy their crops. And so some of the skill things are really, really interesting. And there was there's two really good ones that we've done, in my opinion. There's one called, it's like a light box. So you give them a solar panel, a battery, um, two electric bulbs for lighting the room, and a charger for charging phones. And you can have a socket for a small radio. So we teach them how to use that. And what we do is we give them, we give them it for nothing, but they have to repay half. So it costs about $250. And we ask them, I think, to repay $100 over a period of time. So when they go home to the village, this person who left as an outcast suddenly becomes very central to the village because she can charge your phone. And the fascinating for me thing for me is some of them have become very innovative. And one lady, because she had light, she's charged children to come and do their homework. Another one started discos on a Saturday night using a radio. So you could see how these women in their own little way were becoming entrepreneurs. And the, then 
as they go on, they can back, come back and buy a second battery, a second panel, and they can become a bigger charging station. So I just loved that one. I thought, I love the idea of this outcast leaving and coming back, you know, to be getting this great recognition in the village as the entrepreneur of the village. I love that so much. So I thought much. that was great. And you have to remember, most villages in Africa have no electricity. Mm-hmm. So where it might not be a big deal for us, it's a very big deal for them that they are like the light of the village. The other one that I've started, which, again, I think is quite fascinating, we had a huge problem at one point with teenage pregnancy that had fistula, some others not. But little girls, 13, 14, 15, getting pregnant. So we now also have added maternity to our hospital. So there's so many of them, and some of them were sleeping on the beach. They had nothing. So I said, look, we have to start an education program for the fistula girls, and the, we call them the dream team, the teenage pregnancy. So anyway, I came up with this idea of setting up a training school. So in these countries, most people have a house girl. So there's a lot of... Um, people like missionaries, but also diplomats and all sorts of people live in the country. And a lot of the aid workers, they would all have a house girl. So I've now started training these girls that our house girls will be the best in the country. So they train in childcare, they change in cooking, they train in a little bit of first aid, just a little bit of everything. And, and that, again, has been enormously successful. We can't train them fast enough. We're in such demand. And, you know, it's not, it's not such a great, clever, smart idea. It's just about looking where the real need is and then just putting it together. And so some of our girls have done really, really well. And they've been selected by, you know, quite well-known diplomats and things to go and work for them. So, I mean, they won't all attain the same level. So some might only end up working in a very basic restaurant. But I can again, I can see enormous potential. So it's so nice that you've you've helped them when they're at their lowest, but you've also empowered them going forward. Yeah. Tell me about when you found out that your efforts were going to be recognized by the Queen. Well, I found that very humbling because you know you do these things, and and your your reward really comes from from giving people a purpose and for all the the things. And you always come back from Africa just feeling so humble. So when I heard that I was getting the award from the Queen, I I was obviously very delighted and it was a fantastic honour. And the interesting thing, I was actually knighted by Princess Anne, who I actually know very well and I'm quite friendly with. So you don't know until the day who's going to do it. Um, So for me, again, that was another enormous plus because I, at one point, was a trustee in one of her charities and I got to know her very well. But the whole the thing is, it was lovely to get such recognition. And maybe it does help open doors occasionally. Um, and particularly maybe in Africa, people are very into status and position probably much more than we would be. And so, you know, anything that helps the women is useful to me. Mm. You have granddaughters, and you have daughters and granddaughters. Is there anything that you uh, pass on to them in terms of advice for how they can approach the opportunities and challenges that are coming their way? 
Yeah, I have actually great granddaughters as well. So I have a lot of responsibility. Um, well, the main thing I feel it's important to pass on to my children is what my mother passed on to me was really about always thinking about other people. We came from a very poor background. Our father was a bus driver. Um, and we did not own our own house. We lived in very basic accommodation. We were very happy, very loved, but we didn't have a lot. But my mother always taught us that we always had enough to give to other people. And as a child, I remember, she used to send us with a jug of soup to somebody else in our block who didn't have much. And like she was a missionary leader. So for my daughters and my granddaughters, I always encourage them to be people that care because I think if you have a heart for the poor, your life is much more the richer of that. Mm. And so that's really always what I try to instill into them. I tell them it doesn't really matter what kind of car you drive. It doesn't really matter what house you live in. But if you can help somebody on your way along at the end of the day, that is the only thing that really matters. It really is. So these are the kind of values I try really hard to pass on. So one time, I always used to go to, to um, fly to Africa on a Sunday night. I used to go about six or eight times a year. So anyway, they were, we all come for Sunday lunch and the children run around. I would often say, Grandy's going to Africa tonight. Um what are you going to give me to take to the poor children? So anyway, I must have been laboring the point too much. And this four-year-old, I had said, you know, is there, just to teach them to give, do you have a little toy that you would like to give me to take? And she went, Grandy, if they're so poor, you'd be much better to take them cowpo than a toy. <laughs> I thought it was so funny. Cowpo being the baby medicine, right? Yes. And I was saying they're sick and they're poor. But She's, I thought that was quite amusing. And what is she doing today? She's now a mother of three. <laughs> and she works in social media as well. So all my children have worked in the orphanages and all my children have gone to work in Africa at one point in their lives. And I do think, I think it's so important for everybody, just if they can, to experience that time of just giving. Yeah. And making that bit of time available. I think we are definitely the richer for doing that. I mean, everybody here has got so much and people complain and they really actually don't have anything to complain about in big picture stuff. And I always think a trip to Africa puts your feet right back on the deck. Boy, I'll tell you, that has definitely been true for me. And I look forward to getting a chance to return. Um, in fact, I, I know Mercy Ships, of course, has the great big project of uh, having a new ship built, and uh, I know all of us are anxious to see how much work that is going to be able to accomplish. I had just one last question for you. Um, because you were, you're were you one of these women that uh, does a lot, actually most women do everything right, um, a, a big question that I get from younger women is if I asking me if I have advice for how to have a pretty decent or work-life balance. You know, um, for family time and for your work and even time for yourself. Did you just figure that out along the way or had, did you adapt or change as your business grew and your family grew and then all of your efforts philanthropy-wise um, grew as well? I think I just figured it out along the way. 
I don't think that I always got all of that right because it's actually quite difficult for women to juggle everything. I think we all beat ourselves up and reflect and think, if I had done more time or if I had done this. But I think you've got to do the best you can at the time. I always tried to keep a Sunday free. Like I would maybe leave to travel on a Sunday, but I always tried to do Sunday lunch, which was a big deal. Everybody came for Sunday lunch. Um, so I always tried to protect a Sunday so that we, you know, we had time as a family. Um, and I always tried to at least have some holiday time where, you know, we did things that were all for for the kids. But I wouldn't pretend to have any great panacea for it. And I think probably now everything seems to get faster and faster. And I look at young women nowadays and um, I think it's tough. I think it's very tough. But, you know, I think you're, as long as you share with your children what you're doing and how you're spending the time. I always found, you know, if I like told the stories about where I was going, what I was doing, or particularly if I was doing the foundation work, the children were actually very understanding. And I know, or I believe that my children are very proud of, of my achievements. And there's none of them say that they feel totally neglected or the worst of having had a very busy mom. <clears throat> Excuse me. But sometimes, you know, Dana, I think if I want something done, I always ask a busy person mm. to do it. And I think often if your time management is good, it is amazing how much you can squeeze in. And I think women are quite good at time management. We are. Well, I um, like to believe. I think I so, am. too. Um, I look forward to seeing you. I hope that that can happen in this year uh, post-COVID. And thank you for being such a role model for me and now hopefully for everybody that listens to this as well. Thank you, Dana. I love talking with Holly, a former mentor, and Ann Glogue, a current mentor, because I had a lot to learn when I was first starting and what I love about my life now. And even as I get older, I realize how much I still have to learn And so we will continue to do that every week on this podcast. Many thanks to Holly and Anne. And next week, we talk to Jamie Kern Lima, a New York Times bestselling author and founder of It Cosmetics, a company she started in her living room and grew to the largest luxury makeup brand in the country. Jamie talks about her new book, Believe It, how to go from underestimated to unstoppable and shares what she learned along her journey. Make sure you subscribe to this series wherever you download podcasts and leave a rating and review. I'm Dana Perino. Everything will be okay. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, in these ever-changing times, you can rely on Fox News for hourly updates for the very latest news and information on your time. Listen and download now at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Listen to Fox News Podcast shows ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or follow wherever you get your podcasts.